Now, as you guys have heard me say many times um, over the years, the word Christian today has really been reduced to practically nothing. Yet the word Christian can mean anything, and yet at the same time mean nothing in our society. The term Christian in uh, contemporary usage can mean anything from someone who's not Jewish, someone who grew up attending any kind of religious service, as long as the word church is on the sign out front. And of course, it's certainly for those who claim to have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, even though the world seems to be confused on what a Christian is, the Bible is, of course, very clear. As we know, there are many things that characterize Christians, but yet the supreme characteristic of a Christian is love for the Lord Jesus Christ, love for God. That is the supreme characteristic of a Christian, the love of God. When challenged to name the single greatest commandment of the law, you guys know how Jesus replied, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. He said, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Jesus challenged his disciples to love him more than anything else, to make that their highest priority. He said in Matthew 10, he who loves his father or his mother more than me is not even worthy of me. And he who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me, he says, is not worthy of me. Now, most of us, I'm sure, would say, uh, yeah, I believe that. Absolutely, right? We all raise our hand. But yet, we all know, if, if we were honest, you'd have to admit those are some pretty hard words to swallow. They really are. Well, the church at Ephesus knew this truth. The church at Ephesus lived this truth for many, many years, but somehow, some way, they had let this truth fall by the wayside. And for that reason, a letter was written to this church, and we find it in Revelation chapter 2. You see, the Ephesian church had done some great, great things over the years, but they had let that slip away because of a simple change in their attitude. They were doing great things for all the wrong reasons. Now, before we jump into the text, as you know me, as I always do, I'm going to spend a little bit of time getting us to that point, giving us a better understanding of why this was even written in the first place. Many people think that Ephesus was this little tiny town that Paul was walking through one day and he shared Christ and all of a sudden he started a revival. Now, I'm, I'm sure that Paul did everything he could to share Christ, but when you look back at history, you will see that Ephesus at the time of the Apostle Paul was not a little tiny town. As a matter of fact, it was a thriving metropolitan city. 
One Bible historian says Ephesus was one of the greatest, the most impressive cities of the ancient world. A political, religious, and commercial center in Asia Minor. Ephesus, folks, was the economical background of Asia Minor. The main reason for this was because Ephesus was located at the mouth of the Caister River. You've heard of the term location, location, location. Well, this is certainly one of those. All of the cargo ships that would go into Ephesus there, um, they, would, they would go in there because there were four main highways that would go through Ephesus and then right into Asia Minor. It was, it was actually known for being one of the greatest seaports in the ancient world. And so basically, if you wanted to get your inventory into the country, you had to go through Ephesus. Well, there's another important distinction about Ephesus, but this one wasn't so beneficial. Besides, besides being known for their economical prowess, Ephesus was a hotbed for idolatrous temple worship. Right in the middle of this town stood a massive pagan temple called, many of you know, it was called the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was uh, the most sacred goddess, if you will, in the entire Greco-Roman world. If you want to know more about that, I encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 31. But one thing about the Temple of Artemis that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. History tells us that it was made out of glittering Persian marble. Listen to this. It was 425 feet long. That's amazing. 425 feet long. It was 260 feet wide. The 130 hand-carved columns, that took a while. They stood 60 feet high. 37 of them were studded with jewels, with gold. Now, when you see that, you would think that because the, the temple looked like this, it would be one of the classiest places around. One of the places where the, the prominent people were invited, the snooty people, the rich and the famous, if you remember that show. It was a five-star place to hang out, if you saw that. But most of the times, it was just the opposite. You see, this temple was used for things like sorcery and, and magic, exorcisms. Really, every religious piece of propaganda was going on there. But there was one more thing, though, that was most important. And you see, Artemis was the female goddess of fertility. Thousands of priestesses, who were really nothing more than prostitutes, they played the major role in the worshiping of Artemis. The temple, of course, was filled with priests and filled with these prostitutes, bankers, musicians, dancers, who really, to be honest with you, it was just one massive orgy. That's what it was. Basically, what you had was a city that was involved in about every kind of indescribable sexual perversion that there was. If there was anything that you can conjure up that was sexually immoral, it was going on at the temple. 
one of the most famous philosophers at that time, his name is Heraclitus, he said no one could live in Ephesus without weeping of its immorality. Now you would think, folks, with that much sin going on, it would be no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. There would literally be nothing, nothing good going on in that city. And yet right in the middle of this adulterous city was a faithful group of Christians, a group of people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were proclaiming the gospel right in Satan's backyard. You can read in Acts chapter 19 how Paul ministered there for right about three years and had an extremely profitable ministry. And of course, that is where the church of Ephesus began. Well, eventually, like many pastors, Paul felt called to leave Ephesus. And that's, as you know, is when young Timothy was going to take over. As you read from the book of 1 Timothy, uh, you begin to see some of the problems that had begun to arise in the church at Ephesus. Chapter 1 talked about certain men who were already teaching false doctrines. Chapter 2, we see that they were having problems in their worship service. Chapter 3, they needed qualified leadership. The elders in the church were a mess. None of them were qualified to be there. Chapter 6, the issue with the love of money. We all know that chapter. And of course, there are many others. That's not an exhaustive list. But as you can see, these things needed to be dealt with. And this, of course, was why Paul had written to Timothy in the first place. Okay. Now, after Paul had wrote Timothy, we don't hear anything about Ephesus until Revelation chapter 2. And keep in mind, this is about 30 years later. Okay? A lot can happen in 30 years. <laughs> right? Leadership can change. Certainly a, an entire generation of people are going to be coming in. Styles of teaching, styles of worship, really, really no different than I think what we would see today. And so keeping this 30-year gap in your mind... Knowing things would change, if you're not already there in Revelation chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. He says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Stop right there. Dropping back, just to do this real quick, dropping back to verse 1, you'll notice that this letter, and by the way, this is just like all of the letters to the churches there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It started by saying this is written to the angel of this or that church. Okay, This one, of course, is to the angel written to 
the church at Ephesus. Now, a lot of us, as you probably know, and maybe yourself, you get all kinds of maybe some wild ideas of what an angel is or whatnot. I think some of us, uh, you may, we may see things in scripture and some other people remember cartoons or something of the little angels sitting on the side of somebody's shoulder. And it's this little guy or it's a, it's a human-like creature and, and it's translucent or has wings, right? A little mixture of all kinds of stuff. But the word angel is the Greek word angelos, and it just means a messenger. That's it. It just means a messenger. Okay, all throughout Scripture, there's only two ways this word is used. It's, word, it's used in the obvious sense, and that is, of course, a heavenly angel. Okay, but it's also used to mean a human messenger. It's hard to figure out in your mind when you see the word angel because a certain thing comes to your mind but it's also used to describe human messengers. Now, due to the fact that this letter was written to a literal church in Asia Minor, all of those, those churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, all literal churches, okay, because that is a fact, the word messenger here is really talking about the pastor, the, the overseer of that church. It's the leader of the church. It's the shepherd of that church, okay? Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Once again, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this this morning, but if you do want to drop back later and read chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, you'll notice, certainly if you have a red letter edition, but you'll notice here he's talking about Christ, and now, it will also tell you that the seven stars are the angels or they are the messengers. And then it says that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. Now, from that point, I want to move forward into what I would simply call the meat of the text, verses 2 and 3. And let's look at the message that Christ has for this church. Okay. He begins here in verse 2 by saying, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. The word know there is the Greek word oida. It is not the word gnosko. It's the Greek word oida, which means to know completely. Okay? Jesus has an absolute full knowledge of everything in this church. Right? He knows, as we, we've used these terms before, he knows the who, what, where, when, and why. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing going on in this church that is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And this is why, of course, he is able to lay out these specifics uh, that are taking place in the church. Because he knows everything, right? And so for that, he says, I know what? He says, I know your deeds, now, when he says here, I know your deeds, what he's doing here is simply summarizing all that's going to follow in the next couple of verses. Sometimes you and me might go, uh, I know your deeds. For example, this and this and this and this. this that's kind of what he's doing here. I know your deeds, and here they are. Okay, This is kind of what he is doing here. Okay, So stating they had deeds... Basically, he's pointing out here that this church has been active, okay? Unlike maybe some other churches, the church at Ephesus was not lazy. 
They were doing their thing. These were not a bunch of pew warmers who, who, who came to church late and left early. You guys probably hadn't heard that word pew warmer in a long time, but it, it, they're not those kind of people. The Lord knows that they have kept themselves very busy. Busy being faithful. Busy doing, which, if you will, the work of the Lord. Okay? And so as he begins now, he's going to get into this, what I would just simply call a list. Right? I know your deeds, and now he's going to tell you what those deeds are. Number one, he says, I know your hard work. Some of your translations might say toil. I know your toil. That word there, toil or hard work, it literally means giving it everything that you can possibly muster up. Okay? It's not lackadaisical, right? Giving it everything you can muster up. Giving it your all. Matter of fact, Thayer's Greek defines it as an intense labor. An intense labor. In other words, Jesus is saying that this church worked to the point of exhaustion for the cause of Christ. It's the opposite of what laziness is. These people were not afraid, as my old pastor used to say, they're not afraid to break a sweat. They were not afraid to get out there to roll up their sleeves and do whatever it took to accomplish what God had called them to do as a church of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was simply sharing Christ. Maybe it was, it was uh, uh, caring for the needs of others. Maybe it was equipping the saints. But whatever it is, they were doing it. I mean, talk about a compliment, right? If you think about that, he's saying you guys have done what a church is supposed to do. That's, that's a pretty cool compliment when Jesus Christ is the author of the letter. Jesus says, blank. Wow, that's a pat on the back, right? Now stop for a second and keep in mind where this church was. This goes back to what I said earlier. Folks, this wasn't downtown Mayberry, <laughs> Right? As I stated earlier, this entire city, the entire city was involved in immoral worship at the temple. This church could have easily said, oh, come on, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. You expect us to do all these things here? Do you not know what I'm working with? What do you think I am, a miracle worker? I mean, you can hear all the excuses going on. Seriously. But they didn't say that. From what he's saying here, they invested their time, they invested their energy, they invested their resources in building a church that honored the Lord. Moving forward, still in verse 2, Jesus now compliments them on their perseverance. I know your deeds, I know your hard work, and he says, I know your perseverance. The word perseverance, sometimes translated patience or maybe even endurance, it carries the idea of a stick to carries the idea of being steadfast. Once again, Thayer's Greek says, 
in the New Testament, it's a characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. So no matter what's going on there, right? He is hanging on in the midst of trying circumstances. It doesn't matter what's happening. That's perseverance. You're seeing it through. Folks, the believers in Ephesus had it tough. Right in the middle of their city was a huge pagan temple. Can you imagine that here in our city? The problems we're dealing with here? Acts chapter 19 once again explains how Paul was almost lynched there by an angry mob. Why? Because he simply preached the truth. But they still persevered. These people worked hard. When times got tough, they worked even harder. They didn't just claim to be a bunch bunch of victims like we would pretty much see in our society today. They were victorious over their circumstances, hence the term. They persevered. Most of us understand, most of us know in our own lives, it's pretty easy to serve God when things are going great, right? I mean, let's be honest. It's pretty easy to serve God when things are going great. Showers of blessings are coming your way. But what about showers of adversity? What do you do when people are against you? How many people in the church today will only serve God up to the point of adversity? That's as far as I'm going. After that, I'm done. How many people are like that? Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Perseverance. Continuing to move through what I would just consider this short list, Jesus now admires them on their stand for morality. Their stand for morality. He says here in verse 2, He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Now, folks, one of the things the church has almost given up on today is dealing with sin in the church. They act like it doesn't matter. The church doesn't like or the pastors don't like confrontation. I mean, nobody does. But they don't like it. They don't want to confront people in a sin that is ongoing. In case you haven't noticed, this why there's, it's very difficult to tell the difference today between the church and the world. Because the world is all in the church. And they're kind of running it because the pastors won't allow anything different. But that wasn't the way it was in Ephesus. These people were determined to remain morally pure. And with that attitude, they were not willing to put up with ongoing sin in the church. Using that word wickedness. Wickedness was not disguised by the word tolerance. We all know that word in our culture, don't we? They remembered what Paul taught their grandchildren way back in Ephesians 4.1. He says, I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you've received. 
whatever God has called you to be, I'm certainly a believer in itself. He says, live your life worthy of that calling. These people did not like the wickedness. They stood for it. They took a stand for morality. Still in verse 2. We're only going to verse 20, so don't be, I'm just kidding. We're not going to verse He now gives them praise on their stance on doctrine. He says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. Boy, it's sure sad that churches today don't do that, isn't it? <laughs> they knew how to evaluate spiritual leadership. There were false brothers inside the church who claimed to be apostles. Okay? The Ephesian, this is what I think, the Ephesian church believed what Paul told the church in Thessalonica. He told the church in Thessalonica, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. People would be smart to do that today. Take that advice. Biblically, test all things. Test it in the light of Scripture and hold fast to that which is good. This church also practiced, if not remembered, what Paul had told their elders many years before. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul was serving in the church at Ephesus for, give or take, close to three years. He's finally getting ready to leave the church, as you know from 1 Timothy 1. Remember, he's going to Macedonia, right? And so he's got one final meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And you'll find that here in, in, in Acts chapter 20. And he says this to those elders. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, be shepherds of the church of God. Be shepherds of the church in Ephesus, if you will, which he bought with his own blood. Listen to this. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. He then says, even from your own number, for those who are attending your local fellowship, if you will, men will arise and they will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. And so he says, be on your guard, be ready. And remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul understood what was going to happen. He knew what was going to take place. He gets it. The Ephesian church remembered that, and they stood fast to what they know to be the truth. They were not going to give people a pass just because they come in here and say, I am an apostle. They weren't going to do it like many churches still do today. And so as we finish here in verse 2, the church had been in, encouraged because of their hard work, because of their perseverance, because of their stance on morality and their understanding of biblical doctrine. They're encouraged. You guys have done a great job. 
And now as we enter into verse 3, Jesus basically just real quickly sums up those points. Okay? He says, you have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Folks, the, the Ephesian church did not lack serious and sustained activity, even to the point of suffering for Christ's name. This church, seemingly, from what we're reading, remained faithful to the Lord. They were loyal to His Word. They were loyal to the work that He had called them to do. And very, very important in this verse are those words, for my name. Jesus says, you did this for my name. They did this for the honor and the glory of Christ and, if you will, his church. It wasn't about them. It wasn't because, hey, if we do this, man, the people are going to flock, man, our church is going to boom. It was about Christ. Now, if we stopped right there and examined Jesus' assessment of the Ephesian church, just looking at those first few verses, we'd all have to conclude, man, that's a pretty rock-solid church. They're an example of the kind of church, you know, we, we would all want to be a part of the kind of church we should be. That's the kind of church you'd love to see planted all over the world. It's a pretty phenomenal place. But in saying that, I want you to ask yourself this question right now. Does anything in those two verses describe you? What we just went through? Do anything, does anything in those verses describe you? Would the people who know you best describe you just like that? Oh man, this person is solid, this person is faithful, this person is... Is stands firm on their doctrine, they persevere, they do this under trial. Do people talk like that or would they talk like that about you? I guess ultimately just ask yourself, am I that person? Do I fit into those, those verses? Is that me? Right? It's important we ask ourselves that question. Just a simple question. We all know what it means, but we have to ask ourselves. We don't just want to look at it and say, no, no, those guys were cool. Well, what about us? Right? Well, this is the very unfortunate part that we now enter into because we can't stop at verse 3. And this is the part that's been brought to my attention recently, just been conversations with different people. It's all key for some reason. It's like, what is everybody reading Revelation 2 these days, Right? Well, we can't stop there. We have to realize, folks, that this great church had one fatal flaw, and that's in verse 4. Yet, well, you can also word the word but, right? You ever notice when somebody says all much of great stuff about you? You go, oh, I'm waiting for the but. Here it comes. But I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. When Jesus weighed everything else, right? Their perseverance, their stand for morality, their stand for truth, it could not make up 
for their lack of passion. For some reason, their love for Jesus was no longer the reason they were doing these things anymore. You have forsaken your first love. Man, you're doing some awesome things. Goes back to that question. Why are you doing them? Because he came to find out it, it, it really wasn't because of their love for Christ, at least anymore. I'm sure it started out that way, right? Folks, the church was, the church of Ephesus was one of the greatest churches in history, but it, it seems that their hearts had just cooled off over time. Their labor of love and passion, it became what you and I would simply call a job. Here's what I do, check the box. We talked about this going over worship, right? Just check the box when you're done. Okay, Sunday morning, I did it. Right? They just check the box when they're done. I want you to think back when you first became a Christian. Now we're all at different places in life. Think back when you first became a Christian. Now for many of us here, that was a really exciting time. Right? If someone, I remember thinking of myself, and of course a lot of these came after my own experience, but if somebody asked you to serve in some capacity in the church, it doesn't matter what it was, you were all over it. Yeah! If for some reason the church doors were opened one more day that next week, something was going on, you were there, you might even have been there early, you're excited, can I help? That's the way it always was. It's the same way for the church at Ephesus. We just, we just looked at both of those verses. It was no different. They loved God. They loved his word. They loved the church. But for some reason, as the years went by, they had become what I would simply call mechanical Christians. We use that word wrote a couple times today. It, you become a mechanical Christians. In other words, you're just going through the motions. They were doing all these things because, well, I mean, you know, that's what Christians are supposed to do, right? How can you be doing this? Well, I don't know. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Oh, okay. I guess your heart is all in it. They knew what they believed. They just didn't have any love. They no longer had a passion for God. And you see, folks, without a love for God or a love for Christ, all of our service is in vain. Without passion for Jesus Christ, our perseverance is wasted. Without passion for Jesus, our stand for morality and doctrine, it's nothing more than legalistic hair splitting. It, you just want to start arguing. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was not complaining about their doctrine. He was not complaining about their deeds. He wasn't complaining about their stance for morality. He was complaining, for lack of better terms, about their spirit behind it. As I mentioned, why? As MacArthur put it, he said they had a purity of life without a passion for Christ. 
They had duty without devotion. They had given him their hearts, but they had given him their heads, but they had no longer given them their hearts. Many of you know this, but in Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord was talking about Israel. He said, these people come to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules that are taught by men. How many, folks, how many times have we talked about that in studies of the Old Testament, through Daniel, through the men's group, or just in general, the Pharisees, right? You can take that verse and say, oh, yeah. But man, how many Christians does that apply to? The same principle still applies. Oh, man, they come nearly with their heart. Oh, man, they're doing the stuff. Man, look, look at them out there. The hearts are far from me. Once again, you have to ask yourself, does that verse describe me? I asked you prior on the other verses. Does that, do those verses describe you? Verses 2 and 3? The sad part, yeah, you come to, to verse 4 and you've got to ask yourself the same question. Does that verse apply to me? Where are you at today? There's a lot of faithful people in this church and many other churches. I, I don't know what's going on in your heart, but only you can answer that question. Why do you do what you do? Because your mom and dad taught you that all your life? Because you want people to look at you a certain way? Or, honestly, you love the church. You love God. You want to honor him. You want to be faithful. Well, in verse 5, and we'll close with this, but in verse 5, Jesus tells them three things that they must do. Three things. Number one, he says, remember. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. It's like saying, I want you to go back to that place of departure. If your Christianity is nothing but cold doctrine, think back when, Christ, uh, when you first experienced Christ in your life. If you're just, if you're just mind, is to, you know, I think uh, Alex mentioned it this morning, if your mind is just because you're chuck full, I can answer that question. Is that all you got? Think back when you first came to know Jesus Christ. You were excited. Right? Remember the exciting love that you had at the beginning. Remember the wonder of your newfound salvation. The inexpressible joy that you had never, ever had before. Think back when you first learned how real Jesus Christ was. I've told you guys that story of myself. I literally caught myself thinking when I was at a Bible study, I said, Jesus, is, he's changing me. I, I like this. I should have been out selling drugs two weeks earlier. But right now I'm at a Bible study. I'm like, that's laughable. But I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I knew God was changing me. See? 
Think back when you first learned about Christ and everything you did was because you had a passion for God. It had to be. You didn't know any doctrine. You didn't know anything. You just loved the Lord. He says, remember those days. And the secondly, he says, repent. We all know what the reason for repentance is, don't we? It's a very short little word called sin. So what he's saying here is, is that you can do all the work, you can do all the service, you can even persevere, but if you do it while forsaking your first love, it is sin. We need to do what Saul did in 1 Samuel 26, 21. He simply just said, I have sinned. Surely I have acted like a fool and erred greatly. Or as if you were here this morning, when, when Ken actually, uh, we were in Daniel. When they read through Daniel 9, when you read Daniel's prayer, I mean, it's, that's kind of the prayer as well, isn't it? So he says here, repent. The word repent simply means, metanoia, it simply means a change of mind. Do a U-turn on what you're doing and what you're thinking. Turn your back on your current condition and turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the excitement. Turn back to the love of God. And then after you have repented, he says, do the things you did at first. If you want to use an R, then use the word return. And that's, of course, that's the fruit of, of repentance, right? Our actions. Go back to where you made the wrong turn and get your mind in the right place. Get your priorities right. The reason, folks, that you loved God is still there. Nothing's changed. He's still worthy of it. He's still faithful. Still gives you grace. Still forgiving. All those things, all the same reason, they're all still there. Nothing's changed except us. Recapture that richness. Recapture the richness of that love relationship that you had at one time. And maybe it's through Bible study. Maybe it's through time and prayer. Maybe it's through Maybe it's through realizing what true worship is. But whatever it is, he's saying here, recapture the passion for God. Not just the passion of doing what a Christian does. The church at Ephesus had works, they had labor, they had patience, but they ditched their reason for doing it. You see, it's not what we do for Christ, but it is the motive behind it. It's the reason that counts. It's the why. Ephesus had a busy church with high spiritual standards. They could not bear worthless people or evil people. They would not listen to false teachers. The work had been difficult. They had not fainted. In every way, that would look like a successful church from a human point of view. I'm sure some of today's busiest churches, many of them very large, they're full calendars and they're weary workers would fit that description. 
I just got so much to do. Like Martha, we can be so busy working for Christ that we have no time to honor him or to love him or to worship him. Labor is no substitute for love. So now is the time. Remember, repent, return. And with that, I need to pray. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why that this, uh, this discussion has come up so many times in the last month about that church that lost their first love, but certainly by going through it, um, uh, it's a great reminder for all of us. It's easy to think about, well, you know how Ephesus was. It's easy to tell the story, but Lord, it's easy, it's harder to, to come back and bring it to ourselves. Lord, allow this to challenge ourselves today, each and every one of us. It's going to have to be an individual challenge. It's not really as a church at large, collectively. It's, it's, it's one person at a time. Lord, help us to realize, help us to question ourselves, why do I do this? Or why don't I do this? And Lord, so many times I think we can be mechanical Christians. So Lord, help us to... Um, start that fire once again inside of us that we've had all those years ago when we first came to Christ and it was exciting. It was awesome. We loved it. And Lord, now it, it's just sometimes it gets to the point of, well, I have things to do. Lord, help us to, to understand the reason we do it and help us to look to you. And of course, we know that through your word, Lord. If we're in your word, we'll recognize who you are. And therefore, we'll do the things we do because of our love for you and our honor for you. Challenge us, not just this week, really, but Lord, for the rest of our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.